So I caught up with Stephen Hess the other day. Stephen is my old boss from Weapon 7 back in the day in London, early 2000s. Um, he's gone on to be part of maybe the world's first non-profit accelerator, a fairly unique uh, model anyway, and then later his own consulting business uh, as a mentor and investor uh, with, with startups. We talk about the early days of digital advertising uh, in London, uh, the optimism uh, around digital back then, how that's kind of fizzled out a little bit, but perhaps it's on the way back. We also cover why being early is sometimes a bit like being wrong. Talk about some of the things Stephen was up to in between founding Weapon 7 and leaving network agency world. We also discuss what sort of traits uh, he looks for in founders when, you know, when looking for things to invest in or businesses that can benefit from his mentorship. And then uh, towards the end, we touch on one of the uh, aspects or factors that often gets overlooked, you know, whether a business is, uh, or a startup is successful or not. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Stephen Hess. Stephen, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Ian. Uh, it's really nice to chat with you. Really nice to be reconnected. Um, uh, it is. I've just so it's just before we hit record. I said I've been out. I've been out here in Australia for eleven, nearly twelve years. So for the benefit of the listeners, so uh, our history is. I I was. I think because I, I was trying to think. I was employee number uh, or person number six. I think in Weapon Seven. Back in, yeah. back in the day. That would have been about 2004 or something, or 2005, wow. maybe. Yeah. But, uh, and you, of course, were one of the founding partners. And I thought it would be, I thought it'd be good to just to start, to start off with, because I don't know if this is a, a, a headline in the UK, but it seems to be all over here in Australia. People are talking about the, uh, the great resignation. And, uh, and particularly in uh, in our former career uh, of uh, advertising stuff, everyone seems to be uh, quitting big network agencies and starting up little, uh, you know, little groovy shops. Uh, but of course, you uh, did that many, many years ago. I wonder if there's any parallel with uh, with sort of what's happening now with those early days of, of digital. Uh, advertising. The, the, uh, first mm. thing, uh, <laughs> because uh, you know it's now fairly common for for a, you know agency or whatever to to have a sort of uh, you know like a band name, you know. Uh, yes. Whereas back in the day, if if you left a you know you know network agency, you know you would just uh, uh, use the initials of the founders, and that would be it. You know, but I remember. I don't know if you remember telling me the, the reason why uh, Weapon 7 um, 
didn't have the founders' initials. Uh, well, I think um, you know it's a it's a really interesting question because it begs an answer around why marketing, advertising, and branding agencies are not any good at creating differentiated marketing, branding, and marketing for their own brands. Yes. You know, there is kind of, as you say, this kind of a generic of it's the founders' names, mm. and now it's a generic of a band name. Yeah. Um, and when we were, when, when Simon, who was the creative director, original creative director of Weapon 7, when he was trying to think of a name, he wanted something to be different and he wanted something to stand out yeah. and he wanted something to make a point. Yeah. And um, he like was a, a huge... What, what a crazy thing to think in advertising. I know, my God, you know, how, <laughs> how, how uh, bizarre. Uh, he should have been ostracised for his, you know, his uh, inappropriate thinking. Um, but he he was a huge video gamer and decided that the um, the seventh weapon in one of the video games, I think it might have been Doom, but I'm not sure, um, was an invincible weapon. And if you got that, then you were undoubtedly going to win. Right. And that's where the original name of Weapon 7 yeah. came from, um, which was you know hugely differentiated particularly at the time that when he was designing the logo it was big block chunky yeah. um type in bright fluorescent pink yeah. so you know not only was the name standing out but the the uh the representation of the brand was also quite distinctive because yeah. i think at, at that time you know, it's not it's not like now where there's some sort of you know digital shop on every sort of street corner. There was even in London then there was hardly any. I think the ones I remember were, were us, uh, Dare, uh, Polk, maybe yeah, uh, and maybe one or two others. Um, but, um, I thought you know, well, the the joke I was trying to feed you was you you said to me, well, we couldn't call ourselves after the founders' names because uh, you know Brown, Hess, and Smith would have been BHS. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for not taking the bait. But now, now you can understand why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess to, to, to the, I was going to say to the other other question you asked, which is, you know, is there a time? Are we in a similar time to the Great Resignation? I think it, it's the similarity is probably around a sense of empowerment and um, uh, entrepreneurial hunger. So, you know, back in, you know, the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, you know, we'd come out of the dot-com crash in the late 90s, and there was increasingly a new dawn and a resurgence of doing digital things for brands where there were no rules set and the path was unclear and there was a lot of change occurring, but it was still a very small part of, you know, overall yeah. marketing. 
And so for anybody who was feeling entrepreneurial or empowered, the opportunity to get out of, you know, kind of inverted commas, traditional advertising or marketing and into digital was moving from slow to fast, from, you know, structured to unstructured, from, um, you know, from tried and tested to unproven and untested. Mm. And I guess that was an industry and a technology shift. And right now we have people who are, as a result of a technology shift, the ability to, you know, even have a podcast, you know, from Mm. thousands and thousands of miles away through to on-demand video conferencing, mostly reliably, people are feeling much more empowered again. And Mm. the idea of being their own boss their own their own person is is quite attractive and if we overlay the idea that you can work from home you've got less commuting you have the technology that enables you to do that um that the shift towards being more entrepreneurial is kind of becoming more pervasive in society where you know it's you know you can leave a top university to go and become a an, an entrepreneur and that's celebrated versus mm. you know going into one of the blue chip consulting firms or finance firms mm. so i think what are the parallels well maybe there's a parallel where people are feeling empowered and there's a parallel where they're feeling excited and there's a parallel where technology is enabling a step change in the way in 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 the way people work mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because I think that there was, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, as you say, there was that, you know, sense of possibility. There was so much optimism, I think, about the digital future, um, which a lot of it kind of sort of fizzled out, I think, you know, became actually, you know, I thought some of the, you know, particularly in advertising, when you when you think what's the most technologically advanced, you know, which is sort of you know highly targeted, programmatic, uh, you know, algorithm driven, is actually the most is actually more traditional, you know, because it uh, you know it doesn't rely on creativity or whatever to get attention, you know, because it's just all about about the uh, the targeting. But I think yeah, um, on on that on that point. What you know, I'd be. This is something that I never asked you uh, at the time when when I was working for you and everything. But just maybe talk us through. You know, there must have been a point because you worked at, at uh, Leo Burnett's didn't you, and a couple of other like you know big big networks. What was the point when you thought, actually, I've got to get out of here, and 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 do something for myself? At at the time. When I left to to actually join a fledgling Weapon Seven, um, uh, left I left OMD, a big um, media business owned by Omnicom, yeah. um, and I was heading up their global McDonald's strategy, which you know, working out how to effectively deploy around $1.2 billion a year 
on the one hand and on the other hand I was spending my time working with Sony in Europe and trying to find ways of linking together their disparate divisions whether it be music film playstation uh, tv and audio and at the time sony ericsson the joint venture in the mobile phone space which no longer exists yeah. um I, it was less about i've got to get out of here and more about this is interesting and exciting mm-hmm. and i i guess i i'd already set up one and a half businesses. Um, so in the interim between working at Leo Burnett, split between London and Chicago, I'd left to set up a creative partnership called Host Universal with two other guys, two other creatives. Um, our whole premise was that we wanted the work we were doing to define the people required to work on it Mm. and we wanted all the work we did to have a beginning and an end and the reason for those two things was one that retainers require people to average things out where you kind of have an ongoing relationship where there are activities within the ongoing relationship but there's no defined beginning and no defined end so we wanted everything to be a project and then secondly we you know just as we were coming into the late 90s which we've just been chatting about and the technological changes that were beginning to present themselves to brands we also were really questioning well why was the answer to all marketing challenges tv advertising or with less budget outdoor and radio and press rather than thinking about how the marketing challenge might be solved using all available media with an idea that links it all together. And the reason we came down was one of an organizational structure of how the marketing and advertising industry worked, where people were hired and they had skills in a particular area. And, you know, you'll know this now, running running a, a marketing team is the answer does not always lie in one media the answer lies in working out a strategy and deploying tactics to fulfill that strategy and that's in the real world that can be across multiple different touch points so we we wanted to take the requirement to have specialized skilled people sitting full-time on staff and therefore in order to make money we have to sell what those people did which Hmm. kind of prejudged what the answer was going to be before you asked the question so we set up a you know essentially a freelance consulting business where we had about 50 different people in our network we were one of the first limited liability partnerships in the uk so the kind of the, the short answer was that i'd already set up a business in before weapon seven and within host we also i think uh, you know looking back it was probably the uk's first if not the world's first corporate incubator where one of the clients which was a vc backed film business out of boston was looking for a partner to help them create a brand and go to market strategy and all the assets required to fulfill that go-to-market strategy they were looking for a partner and so would we help them as they raised money? And uh, we ended up um, investing in their business, both personally and as a as a partnership, and taking 
sweat equity from the business. Mm. And, you know, this was a really interesting proposition where they were mm. saying, look, we're going to create a platform. We call it a platform now, but at the time it was going to be a website where um, independent mo movie lovers are going to have the opportunity to watch, uh, rent or buy uh, independently, independently made movies from all around the world mm. uh, online. Um, we created a business called Article 27, helped to raise $12 million, um, took personal and corporate stakes in the business, and we then rented our floor of our office, which was a building in Soho, to this fledgling company. So they had an office in Boston and London and uh, in New York. And that was, I guess, an incubation. And that was yeah. always really interesting to me. So the idea of Streaming movies online. I mean, I can't see that catching yeah. on. Yeah. No, no, you know, why, why, why would anybody in their right mind want to do that? Yeah. But it was amazing because yeah. at the time, you know, we were at Cannes, we were launching the business, the film, um, at the film competition in Cannes in the summer. And I remember flying down to Cannes with a reel of 35 millimeter film for the idents to stick in front of one of the films that we bought, which was going into the show at Cannes. And I remember trying to negotiate my way into the projection room and convince the projecting, the projector to splice in these idents at the beginning, uh, just before the film was uh, was shown. But it was amazing because, you know, everybody's kind of, this is kind of interesting, but you know, it'll never take off. and. Uh, uh, and it's a great case study in being too early yeah. with an idea because realistically the infrastructure and the the, the uh, industry was not able to really work out how to price or license showing films online but but perhaps uh, more uh, important was the fact that broadband penetration was not great That's and the speeds true. were slow yeah. so uh, now we kind of take it for granted that we can stream whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. But back then it was just an idea without reality. And so I guess to, in answer to your question, so leaving to to drive Weapon 7 was, it was less scary for me because I had had roles in enterprise in large marketing groups and I had also set up and grown a couple of businesses. So I kind of knew what I was getting into. Yeah. And there's also, I think, you know, we shouldn't forget part of being an entrepreneur is assessing the risk. And at the time of leaving OMD to to do Weapon 7, we were, my wife and I, we were just about to have our first child, Finn, who's now about to be 17. But, you know, the cost of a baby is not the same price as running the cost of an older child. And, mm -hmm. you know, realistically, we had some resources that we could use so that I was able to take a really significant, you know, salary cut, which enabled us to do to to get Weapon 7 up and running. Mm -hmm. um, which when you have now, as I have three children, that becomes more difficult. Mm -hmm. And also, as you're a bit older, you become, I suppose, as you get older, the natural inclination, both physically and mentally, is to become more rigid and conservative in your orientation, and therefore your appetite for risk begins to reduce, and you have to work hard to try and overcome that. Yeah, 
it's uh, well especially in the i mean in the advertising but sometimes you don't get the you get the choice you know it's like uh, the stroke of 45 uh, you, you become expendable so you have no choice but to get entrepreneurial yeah which is which is amazing because you would you would want the advertising industry to be entrepreneurial yeah. you know what, what one of the things that always fascinates me when i was much more in, ingrained in the world of marketing and advertising was how every advertising how every business problem had an advertising solution no matter how drastic or uh deadly the business problem was mm. you know you would never get an agency saying oh this is not possible you can't do this you don't have an agent saying of course we can do this and here's how you know it's really interesting that most agencies certainly in my experience all agencies think all problems can be solved with communications energy and hope it would be you know it would be more honest for them to say actually you know what we what we do is make comms right we don't we mm. don't do business model design and we don't you know especially in media agencies so towards the end of my time in advertising i'd been you know i moved over into into media and they seem to want to be management consultants uh, yeah. or and creative agencies rather than just being really solid media planning and buying which is what the client wants from them you know media agencies are flooded with data mm. and they're looking for ways of trying to use that data to refine what they do as a business mm -hmm. um, and i guess that's more numbers and orientation than it is drawing and writing in orientation yeah um you can but, you know, bamboozle the client with lots of charts and numbers and, and well you know you based on your based on our analysis there's a 3.6 percent growth opportunity which will cost this is more viable and easier to believe than we think you can grow a bit by repositioning the brand and talking about this yeah you know one fits neatly into a business plan and one doesn't um got, but the two things obviously need to be worked hand in hand don't they yeah. Um, so you know the um, you'll know the Lesbonette Peter Field sixty yeah. forty idea you know which is like an average right? and, and every every planner you meet will drag out that slide in their in their deck you know but I thought well it can't all be sixty forty right and then if you actually read their material there's a lot of variables you know so I got the got some geeks to make up the spreadsheet so it's much better because then I could go in and I can say well you know based on our analysis that we, we want to do a 73.6 percent uh, on brand and 26.4 on activation you know it sounded much more convincing because there was more numbers in it and it was I wasn't conning Andy of course that was what the data yeah but so but it's but so so that today because there is such a inundation of data the word has become synonymous with truth yeah. data equals truth yeah. and I'm not sure that's necessarily true because sometimes if you dig into the underlying data some of it is you know not a great source or yeah. it's or it's 
or it's scraped from something else that yeah. was made up in the first place. Yeah. And as the as the data goes through kind of the hierarchy of the database, it becomes it, it adds it, it seems to grow in credibility. And actually yeah. sometimes going back to the raw data tells you a totally different picture. You know, your example there is a is a great one. Mm. There's quite a big difference between 60% and 73.6%, yeah. isn't there? I, I was talking to some students the other week, you know, and I was saying when I was at art school, you know, we had the we had the library, and that was our source of information, right? And if it wasn't in there, you know, it was, it was, it was hard to find. So all the time you're trying to find information, but it's the exact opposite problem now, where there's just too much information, and it's hard to find uh, I mean, to your point there, you know, you can, with, with enough data, you can prove anything you want. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I won't go down too much down that, that rabbit hole. But I just, um, so, so after <clears throat> inventing uh, streaming video online and then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, completely revolutionizing the uh, advertising industry. So, um, so I, um, when I came out here, I think there was only a few more years of Weapon 7 after, I think things kind of changed because when, when Omnicom bought into or, or bought it and then all of a sudden we trebled in size overnight and something, I think uh, it kind of changed, you know, it became, although it was, it, you know, uh, at the time, that, you know, it was kind of painful when there was just five or six of us making it up as we were going along, you know, all of a sudden it became very sort of like a big agency, you know, 150, mm. 150 people. But then I guess your, your, then your plan was always to, uh, after the sale, I'm guessing was, uh, you know, what they, they, you're sort of held in for a period of time, aren't you? Uh, and then once, yeah. and then once once that's up, then you know you can go and do do whatever else interests you. So the next uh, after that happened, the next uh, phase really is is you really becoming an advisor, an investor with with you know startups and small businesses uh, of other kinds. So was that um, you know with your sort of entrepreneurial sort of blood was it was that an easy sort of logic uh once you were out of the agency game to say right uh, now i'm going to take take what i've learned from this and uh you know become more of an advisory consultant so after after omnicom bought weapon seven i was i was i stayed in weapon seven for five years and um one of the things that was really important to me was to make sure that within Omnicom, when I left, Weapon 7 had a good home. You know, Omnicom, like all of the big marketing services group, it, it's pretty big. You know, it's yeah. 150 odd thousand people. I don't know, there's about five or six thousand different businesses in it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's about $12 billion a year, maybe $14 billion a year business. Um, so it can be quite, you can get lost in it. And uh, Weapon 7 sat in a bit of Omnicom called DAS, which was 
everything that wasn't media and everything that wasn't advertising. Mm -hmm. As time had passed, it became increasingly obvious to me that a more joined up and integrated approach to marketing and the communications that marketing buys was going to become increasingly important. And I therefore decided that we should buddy up with one of the ad agency groups to be able to provide them with interactive communications planning, data planning, uh, interactive creative, uh, digital and online work. And we did a couple of projects with different different groups of different ad groups and Omnicom and ended up you know, having a really big client uh, in Mercedes-Benz that we shared with the BBDO network and AMV specifically in the UK. And so when I decided to leave, I negotiated a deal where Weapon 7 swapped out of being in DAS and swapped into being in BBDO. And that would give it a much more um, hands-on, supportive management team, but also a significant opportunity to grow with you know, what was then, maybe still now, I'm not sure, the, the biggest agency in the UK. So finding a good home for Weapon 7 and the team of people who worked in it was really important to me. And once I'd done that, that gave me a chance to step back and do my own thing. And one of the things that I'd become increasingly interested in was the, the business of brands and how they made money and how they worked, you know, which you know you will now be, you know, swimming in and fully immersed in as as a you know inverted commas the client. And one of the things I I I I've noticed was that big brands tend to on average grow and smaller brands owned by large companies tend to on average stay the same or, or, or reduce in size. And this has always fascinated me, which was why do big brands grow and small brands decline in a large um, uh, brand owning stable? Mm. Um, and you know, there's kind of, as you dig into it, there are lots of reasons. One is the allocation of resources in terms of capital, in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, talent. Some of it is the priorities of the sales team and the priorities of the profit, the pro yeah. profitability. There'll be, a, there'll be a sort of double jeopardy kind of effect, even within a house of brands, wouldn't it? Where they, um, you know, where just the, 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 the bigger brands and the stable just tend to get more of everything. You know? and yes. Yeah. yeah, you know, and therefore, sometimes the smaller brands in a big stable are given to you know highly talented individuals as their kind of side hustle see what you can do with this it doesn't matter so much as you know it's small and that's great except for the fact that they're bonused and incentivized in what they're doing with the bigger brands so you know even when they do get the talent the talent is is, is distracted and uh, i was i used to work with an old colleague he he left would have advertising to go and join investment banking and he ended up being a partner at goldman and i was chatting to him about what i was going to do next after weapon seven and he said oh you should meet my friend nadia and nadia used to be uh, used to head up goldman's uh, hedge fund strategy business here in london mm. and um 
she'd left and she was kind of thinking about her next gig and <clears throat> he thought we would get on and we met and we did get on and she was quite into the idea of using a fund as an investment vehicle into brands to participate in the growth that the brands benefited from as a result of that investment. And I was quite into and interested in the business of brands. So mm. we kind of decided to work together and we set up this business called Whitecap, which in its original incarnation was an investment advisory business that worked with enterprise, global enterprise size brand owners to help them develop and execute innovative growth strategies for their smaller underperforming orphan brands. So we would go in and work with, you know, an FMCG business. We'd identify one of the brands in their stable that wasn't performing as it should do. We'd work out a growth strategy for that brand, which involved setting up a new entity that the brand owner had a share in and we had a share in. We brought new talent and we brought investment capital to that brand. Yeah. And together we grew it. But whereas it wasn't strictly speaking a JV, because we would still use some of the resources of the brand owner, mm. like distribution, um, like a supply chain, like legal and treasury. And we would deploy the more scarce resources into the brand, which were um, talent, uh, marketing capital, innovation. Um, and that was great. You know, we worked on a number of significant assignments in different parts of the world with all the big blue chip mostly um consumer packaged goods businesses but not exclusively but one of the things that happened in each of the cases was the brand owner in the end said look why don't you just buy the brand from us and that wasn't our business our business model was not to be a brand owner our business model was to be a brand a participator in brand growth and a and an innovative and disruptive force. So we always kind of ended up pulling back. But one of the um, projects we worked on was a food business. And Nadia, my partner, got really into, who now lives in, in, in Brooklyn, in New York, mm. got really into the idea of using food to redefine health and well-being, particularly in America. And so she left to set up this food business that we had spun out of the, some work we were actually doing for SlimFast on behalf of for Unilever. Uh, she set up this amazing startup uh, called Plantable. And the whole idea in Plantable was that you could buy a menu of meals that were prepared and frozen and delivered to you, really high quality plant-based food. But you would also have a personal coach to help you understand how the eating is going to, how changing your diet is going to affect mm. you physically and physiologically, about how you're going to have different cravings and different needs about what is okay to eat and what you should st stay away from. Because one of the things we've noticed is that people tend to go and crash diets and uh, then they reach their goal, usually weight loss, but not always. And then they go back to exactly what they were doing before. Mm. And then that builds up and they go on a crash diet again, usually driven around a particular life event, often mm. a wedding, but not exclusively, of course. <laughs> um, 
And we just, well, why, why, why is that? And it's because people need coaching and nurturing through mm. these transitions. And that was, Nadia left to do that and I agreed to help her do it. So I advised her with that and I invested in that business as did she, I invested very modestly by comparison to her level of investment. Um, but that business has continued to grow and develop and is you know, doing well now in the States. Mm. And that was kind of my first experience of supporting a, a business beyond marketing, the vertical of marketing services. Um, mm. And around about the same time I met uh, this amazing, you know, now very dear friend called Joycey John at uh, a London business school event. Uh, which I happened to be at and Joycey just finished or I was one of their MBA alum and we got chatting and she was looking at starting up the UK chapter of an accelerator, a not-for-profit accelerator called the Startup Leadership Programme that mm. had been uh, founded by Anupendra Sharma in Boston. Um, and Joycey was saying, would you help me to do this? You know, at the time I was kind of interested in you know, the world of entrepreneurship and startups. So I said, fine. And so we set up the the UK's first, I think, probably the UK's first not-for-profit accelerator um, with, I think there was 25 founders in, 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 in cohort one. Um, and now 10, year, 10 years later, I think, we we ran it for 10 years together nine years we actually la left we both stepped back uh, last year because it was time for a new blood to come in mm -hmm. but we um you know we 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 helped support 180 businesses we created four or five thousand jobs raised 160 million dollars here in the uk and it was fantastic and i really enjoyed that um mm -hmm. Uh, and the idea of it being not for profit, uh, entirely merit based to get in was 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 really was really appealing because when you asked entrepreneurs why they wanted to join it, uh, they said they wanted knowledge and they wanted access to capital. And actually, at the end of the six month program, which is peer based, you asked them, well, what did you get out of it? And they said, well, friends, uh, supporters, and uh, a network that I can trust. And that that's a fantastic gift to be able to give an entrepreneur mm. because it can be an incredibly lonely path, yeah. particularly when you're really paranoid and worried about telling everybody that it's not working out the way you want it to be working out mm. and actually creating an environment where everyone is sharing the similar set of values with similar goals, where there's mutual support is a real a real resource a real gift to be able to give somebody that they can rely on so that was kind of my first sam my first kind of taster of working regularly with entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. back to your original question which is you know how did i get into it so over those nine years at slp and i increasingly found that, that fellows in the program would say look can we have a coffee i'd like to chat about whether it be my business plan, whether it be my uh, co-founders, whether it be my investors, whether it be my family life and how it's you know adapting to a changing work-life pattern. Uh, I increasingly found that all these entrepreneurs were asking for 
you know, what now we would call coaching or mentoring sessions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did it because I really enjoyed it. As I decided to move on from SLP, it suddenly struck me that maybe this could be the thing that I did more of, actually, in a more structured and more considered mm -hmm. way. So not only do I work with entrepreneurs, either as a mentor, which is helping guide them from my experience, or as a coach, which is helping to ask them the questions which they already have the answers to. Hmm. It gives me an opportunity to, you know, assess op investment opportunities, which I do for myself. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of the rounded, the, the, the rounded picture, which is coaching, mentoring and investment. And out of that sometimes comes consulting and advisory work, hmm. which is where large enterprises want to reinvent themselves a bit and small enterprises founders want to reinvent themselves and put in place new systems and processes so mm -hmm. i enjoy doing that mm -hmm. um and that, i also was introduced to a guy who was doing a similar thing in the nhs um professor tony young who founded the clinical entrepreneur program in the nhs i think it's the world's largest accelerator for clinicians in the medical system and so i work with him uh, advising and supporting the clinical entrepreneur program so we read these things often online you know the 10 things successful entrepreneurs do when they get up in the morning and all this kind of stuff which is you know a lot of it is clearly just sort of made up uh, and silly but there but but there must be um you know as all of these businesses have gone through the programs and you sit and watch and you think oh that one's you know I, I like the look of that or that's kind of interesting are there is there particular sort of traits you know patterns that you see you know particularly first timers yeah. uh, that that you know it's a bit like being a football coach or whatever you know where you just you can see a raw talent maybe that needs refinement or something that sometimes it's maybe all there I don't know but what what kind of things yeah. Uh, stand out for you as you say there's a there's a lot of discussion and debate and analysis and presentation of what makes for a successful entrepreneur and i guess particularly with earlier stage businesses which is where someone has an idea or they're developing an idea or they've got the foundations of an idea and they're trying to find a way of connecting their product or service to the market so in investment speak this is kind of c this is pre-seed seed or certainly pre-series a which are different moments that investors mm. might invest in a business at these stages where you're looking for ideation or you're looking for product market fit or you're trying to accelerate that early fit the entrepreneur is disproportionately important in determine in this in in the business's success whereas later on as the company begins to grow and develop some momentum the entrepreneur of course is important but is less important and other factors begin to kick in like you know like the momentum like the size of the market mm. like the availability of marketing spend about the uh, conversion ratios about team management but certainly in the early stages you know a bit like when we were all kind of young and enthusiastic at weapon seven 
in the early stages, the kind of founder or the founders are really important and therefore trying to get a handle on whether the founder, he or she, is going to be able to make it work is really important. So you're kind of investing more in the founder, in the entrepreneur, and less in the business in the early stage, whereas in later stages of a business's life cycle, you're investing more in the business and less in the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Although there are obviously exceptions to that. People might point to Tesla, for example, or... Um, I, I remember reading a book years ago, uh, I can't remember, it's one of these sort of cultural studies, sociology type books, uh, I can't remember the, you know, the guy who wrote it, but he had, there was a chapter called The Seven Habits of uh, what, what yes. Neat Capitalism, that's what he called it, uh, and so this okay. was, I think this was written in the 90s, you know, but it, it kind of almost predicted the future, but one of those attributes was, uh, was, was the celebrity CEO. And, well, there you uh, go. and uh, the, the example back then was like Richard Branson, I think, who is, uh, you know, but it's kind of, it's something that has totally come true. But it's interesting Absolutely. to say that that, 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 that the founders are important in the beginning and become less important, but, but, but perhaps become more important in a different way as just more as part of the branding. I think, you know, I think that's true. You know, it's like, um, you could probably, you know, if you were to ask people to name the CEOs of the top 10 businesses by market cap, you could probably, people would probably be able to guess Elon Musk yeah. at Tesla. But, you know, they'd be, then begin to struggle, you know. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs is no longer at Apple. Bill Gates mm -hmm. is no longer at Microsoft. It's like Google, the, the founders are no longer leading Google. You know, it's mm -hmm. it, things change and... Mm -hmm. I think that the celebrity CEO is around a particular character. And, you know, your question is like, are there things that you can look for in the entrepreneurs? And much like everybody, I've I've done some work on this myself and I've kind of tried to package it up in a natty title around, you know, the seven traits of a successful 21st century entrepreneur. But while that's a bit of a mouthful, the kind of the subtitle is portrait of a of, of the entrepreneur. Right. And I think there are kind of seven particular traits that you can you can look at in an entrepreneur, and if they if they are strong in these seven areas, then they will have a greater chance of success as a as a startup founder. You know, the, yeah. there are things like you obviously need energy and you obviously need resilience. There are two yeah. words that are used a lot resilience because you need to get used to everybody saying no, whether that be your investors, your potential talent or your customers and energy because, you know, you need to be able to pick yourself up and keep going. And, you know, if you don't have it, nobody's going to give it to you. Mm. Um, I think um, being ambitious is important. You need to have to want to solve a big problem. Mm. Um, and you need to want to do that for reasons beyond financial reward. You need to be fearless. You know, you have to not be scared of things and you need to not accept conventions. Mm. You need to have focus, but relentless focus. And this is the ability to focus on what's really important and the ability to exclude what's not important. Mm. Um, you need to be able to 
uh, lead. But this isn't by standing above others. This is by recognizing that you need people who are better at doing other things mm. than you. You know, one of the one of the biggest challenges I think that entrepreneurs face is that they they think they're good at everything, and while having self belief is important, obviously, the the self awareness to recognize there are other people who are better at things than you, mm. where you are not as strong as you might want to be. Recognizing that and celebrating that is really important. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs who fail hire people in the early stage businesses who are mirror images of them. Mm. And then you get a really singular dimension of. Uh, a really singular culture which is not diverse and is therefore not robust mm. um, and has a mono opinion and what you actually need to do is hire people who are different to you and who are better at you than things that you are not as good at they are and that's really important that's I think for me one of the things I've, I've noticed is that an entrepreneur who is ambitious and has great ability to motivate others, but also self -aware, enough self-awareness to recognize that they need other and different types of people is important. It's funny because I was, I was talking to, um, to a couple of people I know that have you know, got their little startups that, that they've, well, they're not startups anymore, I guess they're scale-ups, you would call them. And, uh, and both of them said the same thing. The first thing they did, you know, once they had the business and, and the money was hired a CEO. I was like, but surely you're the CEO, and they say, nah, I can't, can't, can't do yeah. that. You know, uh, they, you know, they had the idea for the business and, and kind of knew how it was going to work. But once it's starting to run, it's exactly that. It was like, you know, yeah, I think that's, I think the being self-aware enough to recognise what you're not good at mm. or what is important for your business to succeed is fundamentally important, mm -hmm. um, and that's a leading indicator of a a future successful entrepreneur mm -hmm. you know empathy obviously you need to have you need to have with your you know your talent your team your your founders your investors but also importantly your your customers you know why should they care about mm -hmm. what you're doing um you need to be persuasive you need to get people to do things and you need to be able to learn but the other point which uh is an additional trait which i hadn't really focused the spotlight on before but was brought to my attention was um, a friend of mine uh, i gave uh, the an early draft of this thinking to a, a good friend of mine a lady called Anne Belitho, who is the non-exec chairwoman of one of the biggest hedge funds in the world and i gave it to her because i was interested in her point of view and she goes you know i like it it's it picks up on all the traits that everyone talks about, it's clearly argued, and that was all good. But she then wanted to say, but I think you've forgotten one of the most important things. I said, what do you mean? And she goes, luck. And she goes, <laughs> when, you know, she, she you know, has a, a stellar academic career, a stellar industrial career, you know, she did her MBA at Harvard, and she was given an example of when, you know, she was looking around at the, you know, 150, 200 other MBA candidates in Harvard Business School, all of them are obviously really capable 
and really ambitious. And it, she said it was really difficult to kind of, if you would call it, work out who of them were going to be hugely successful because some of them, all of them were capable, but not all of the opportunity would present itself in the same way to each of them. And so therefore the opportunity presenting itself, that's kind of luck. But as I began to think more about this, I, I began to think that actually maybe the luck is being able to recognize it when it comes along and being able to do something with it when it's there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think perhaps one of the most important characteristics or traits is the ability to recognize when luck is happening and to make the most of it when it does. Some people argue that, of course, the, you know, that you make your own luck through some of those other traits like persistence and uh, resilience and, uh, uh, and everything else. Then, uh, funnily enough, I just read the um, uh, biography of Malcolm McLaren, you know, who, okay. and uh, there's a story of uh, <clears throat> what he used to do was he used to, uh, before he had his shop or anything, before he had any bands, he was convinced that he was destined for greatness in some way. But what he used to do was put on this electric blue Lamy suit and walk up and down the King's Road on a, on a Saturday, convinced that something was bound to happen to him dressed like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it did, um, you know, the, I mean, the story goes, he was walking past the shop that became Seditionaries or whatever on King's Road and, uh, um, and, and the guy came out and said, can you watch the shop for me for half an hour? And he said, yeah, okay. And uh, gave him the keys and he never came back. Yeah, and that was the that was the start of that uh, of that shot. So, wow! Yeah. Well, that's that's an example of luck and yeah. being aware of it, yeah, and, and making the most of it. Yeah. Well, that that's probably a good, a good place to leave it. I did have some other things that I wanted to talk about, but that just means that we can do a part two another cool. time. But I know you've well, got uh, you've got breakfast to sort out and uh, and uh, kids to entertain. Well, it was a real pleasure, Ian. I really enjoyed catching up, and thank you for listening to my meandering. No, thank, more well, than happy, thank you for more than happy to do a part two if that yeah, would be we'll, of interest. Yeah, we'll definitely do a part two because there's more uh, there's more to talk about. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Nice to speak to you.